If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 77 today. Psalm 77. It's become common in our day to doubt everything. In fact, it's sometimes portrayed as the epitome of wisdom to disbelieve everything around us. Everything from moral truth to what we read to what others tell us, even the things we see with our own eyes. There's this expectation that we should treat all knowledge with a certain level of skepticism or doubt. Now, I don't deny that we need to have a cautious view of the world, right? I agree that we certainly should not automatically believe everything we read or hear. Please don't do that. We need to exercise a skeptical wisdom as we encounter the truth claims of our culture. So when it comes to how we view the world around us, I do believe there's plenty of room for doubt. But when it comes to God's word, God's promises, and God's faithfulness, God means for us to trust him with full confidence. Now, unfortunately, for almost all Christians, there are times when we struggle with doubt, sometimes intense, debilitating doubt. Even throughout the Bible, we have examples of God's people, some of them great men and women of God who struggle to believe God's promises. Abraham doubted that God would provide him an heir, so he took matters into his own hands and slept with another woman. Moses doubted whether God could equip him to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. The Israelites, of course, doubted God over and over throughout their journey through the wilderness. Even when they were on the brink of the promised land, when they saw the giants, they doubted that God could really give them what he had promised. Gideon doubted whether he was the man of valor that God called him to be. Elijah doubted whether God would preserve his life from Ahab and Jezebel. Moving into the New Testament, John the Baptist doubted whether Jesus was the Messiah. The apostles regularly doubted Christ. When Peter walks on the water, he starts to sink. Jesus reaches out his hand and he asks, "'O you of little faith, why did you doubt?' Even after his resurrection, right before Jesus gives the great commission, we are told some of his disciples were still doubting. After the resurrection, still doubting. So doubt seems to be a common struggle for many of God's people. And honestly, we don't really need biblical examples to tell us this, right? Many of us could point to times in our own lives when we have doubted God. We doubt the truth of his word, so we live in disobedience. We doubt whether he really loves us, so we fall into discouragement or despair. We doubt his faithfulness because we don't see how he can be working in our particular situation. Now, what does it mean to doubt? What is doubt? In its simplest form, doubt is just struggling to believe. It's struggling to believe. It's something that keeps us from fully believing God's word, God's promises, or God's faithfulness. Now, this doubt that we have at different times can last a moment, just a moment, or it can last days, weeks, years even. 
This is what we see in Psalm 77. Now, this psalm was written by Asaph. Asaph was a Levite leader in Israel. He was one of the lead musicians put in charge of the worship in the temple in Jerusalem. So it makes sense that some of his songs are found in the book of Psalms. But in Psalm 77, Asaph is experiencing doubt. We're going to track Asaph's line of thinking throughout this psalm. And my hope is that at the end, we will see that fighting against doubt leads to full confidence in God. When we fight against doubt, we will have full confidence in God. So let's read Psalm 77. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever? Will he never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has, his, has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So today I want us to see that fighting against doubt leads to full confidence in God. The first thing we see in this psalm is the arena of doubt. We get a glimpse of the state of Asaph's heart. Okay, So Asaph, it seems, is torn it's as though his reason has been separated from his emotions. In verses 1 and 2, he's crying aloud to God. This is what he says, crying aloud to God. He is seeking the Lord. His hand is outstretched toward him, but his soul refuses to be comforted. Then notice what else he does in verse 3. I remember God. So he's remembering God. That's a good thing. I moan and I meditate. But what's the result? My spirit faints. 
So no matter what external effort he makes, his soul, his spirit remains unmoved. He's so overcome with trouble, he's tried everything, it seems, to find deliverance, and yet it has not come. Now, we don't know what kind of trouble Asaph was dealing with. Maybe he was overcome with grief. Maybe he was sick. Maybe someone was seeking his life. Maybe he or the nation of Israel had fallen into some kind of heinous sin. We don't really know. But what is clear is that he is overwhelmed with his present circumstances. This is the arena he finds himself in. This is the battle he has been given. He says, in the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. So he's kept awake at night by these circumstances. In verse four, he says, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. He wants to sleep. He can barely keep his eyes open, but the arena that God has placed him in will not let him sleep. It's like he's a gladiator being placed in the arena, and if he closes his eyes, he'll be overrun by the enemy. He's weary from sleepless nights. His body is worn out from calling upon God. He has no energy, no motivation to even speak. Now, let me ask you, Have you been here? Have you ever been so overwhelmed by your present struggles that it clouds your entire outlook on life? Maybe you've dealt with some kind of sickness or physical ailment, chronic pain or illness. Maybe you've done something you're ashamed of. You wonder how other people are gonna view you. Maybe you've just made a big mistake. You've messed something up. You've shown your ignorance and you're embarrassed. You want to hide. Maybe you're in financial difficulty or your future is in question. Any of these circumstances can cause us to feel weighed down by all kinds of emotions, right? We don't know what the specific situation was for Asaph, but we can all probably identify with his emotional state. And what if, like Asaph, We all do the right things. We do all the right things. We cry out to God. We meditate. We moan. We stretch out our hands. We're up all night crying out to the Lord. And yet relief doesn't come. Our souls are restless. Our spirit faints. Everything around us is dark. There's this cloud of doom that lingers over every aspect of our lives, preaching these messages to us. You failed. You're a failure. You're stuck. Nothing is going to change. Just give up. It can be tempting to give up in these times. If you've ever been in a situation like this, if you've ever felt just overwhelmed by discouragement or despair or doubt, it can be really tempting to give up. In fact, many people have walked away from the faith because of these very reasons. Many people, when they cry out to God for help and he seems not to answer them, they begin to doubt It's become common for people to think of God as some kind of therapeutic coping skill, right? That we just add to our lives. We just pull them out whenever things get hard in order for us to get through difficult times. 
This is a very common understanding of how to deal with our emotions in our modern day. It's just, well, you just need to learn more coping skills, right? So when discouragement comes or when anger comes or when grief comes, you have kind of a bag of tricks, right? Just things you pull out. Well, this is what I do when I get angry. I write a letter and I write all my angry thoughts down and then I burn it, right? That's a coping skill. Or I listen to music or I exercise or I take deep breaths or I go for a walk, whatever it is. We have coping skills. And look, part of this is just being human, right? So I'm not just throwing out all coping skills, saying they're all worthless. We all have different ways of dealing with struggles in our lives. But do we treat God as just just another trick in the bag? We just add him to the bag of tricks. We pull him out when times get tough. But when we don't see immediate results, we can give up and start searching for something else. So what's going to hold you steady? What's going to keep you from walking away from the faith like so many other people do when hard times come? I think we have a clue up in verse 1. Asaph says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. Even in the midst of our greatest trials and our doubting, God hears our cries. He is our audience. If we don't hold on to this truth, our faith cannot be sustained. If we don't believe, you have to get this, if we don't believe that God hears us when we call upon him, we might as well pack up and go home. If God doesn't hear, what hope do we have? There is no hope if God doesn't hear. But even here, in the midst of Asaph's trouble, he's holding on to this sliver of truth, this little bit of hope. I cry aloud to God, and he will hear me. He'll hear us. God hears our cries. He cares about the details of our lives. See, God is not the God of deism. Deism states that God created all things and set everything in motion, and then he just walked away. He has no more interaction with his creatures. He's not involved in our lives. He certainly doesn't care about our individual circumstances. That's deism. But here, we are told that God will hear us. He will. It may not feel like he's hearing us, but we can be confident that our cries for help will be heard. Jesus restates the same idea in the New Testament in Matthew 6. He tells his disciples, he's getting ready to teach them the Lord's Prayer. He tells his disciples that God hears our prayers. Why? Not because of the many words we use. It doesn't matter how many words you use. You could pray till you're blue in the face. It doesn't matter how many words you use. But... He hears our prayers because he is our father and he knows what we need before we even ask him. So we can be confident that when we cry out to God, when we go to him in prayer, he will hear us. This is not because of anything inherent in us. It's because he's our father. He cares for us. 
So when we find ourselves in the arena of doubt, we must remember that God has us here for a reason. Whatever circumstance you are faced with, remember there that God is there with you. He hears you when you call upon him. But unfortunately for Asaph, things get worse before they get better. The overwhelming nature of his circumstances causes him to admit his doubt. Look at verse 5. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. So Asaph begins to do uh, kind of what we all do when times get tough. He starts to think back on his life, right? What were things like before? Sometimes this can lead to nostalgia. Man, remember the good old days? Remember how good things used to be back then? Remember how happy I used to be? Why can't I go back to that? We start to sound like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, right? And back in 82, I used to be able to throw a football quarter mile. Dead serious. Staring at the mountains. I bet you I could throw a football over the mountains, right? This is nostalgia. We just kind of recreate the past. We're so uh, dissatisfied with our present circumstances. We kind of recreate things in the past, try to live there. Man, I want to go back there. Things were so good. And many times our nostalgia sounds just as ridiculous as Uncle Rico because we're probably not remembering things the way they really were, Right? Our present difficulty causes us to look back and recreate the past into something better than it was. Or maybe it's not nostalgia. Maybe when we think back over our lives, maybe um, we're just filled with regret. Maybe you remember specific choices you made that have led you to the arena of doubt that you're in. You think, man, if I could just go back in time, I would do things so differently. I should have chosen a different school. I should have studied something else. I should have taken a different job. I shouldn't be in this place if I'd only done things differently. Guys, I want to tell you, I've experienced this firsthand. Regret is a thief. It will steal your joy in a heartbeat. The older we get, the more life we live, the more opportunities we have, we will have to look back and regret what we've done. But letting our regret dictate our present state of heart will only lead to an unhealthy inward focus and ultimately it will rob us of all joy. We look back on our lives and we just see regret, regret, regret. Or maybe, when we look back on our lives, it's not nostalgia, it's not regret. Maybe you have a more realistic, more God-centered view of the past. Perhaps the way you view your past is not nostalgia or regret at all. You just remember the excitement and joy you once had in the things of God. And now it's just been lost. 
I remember how I used to love the Lord. I love to read his word. I love to talk about what he was doing in my life. I love to be around his people and share in their joy. God used to seem so real to me. But now I'm here in this situation and everything seems so dark. You see, how we view the past says a lot about our present state of heart towards God. Our present circumstances can cloud how we view God's faithfulness. This seems to be what happens with Asaph, because look in the very next verses. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? There was a time when the Lord was favorable. There was a time when I knew his steadfast love. There was a time when his promises meant something. There was a time when God remembered to be gracious and he was compassionate. But now it seems all of it has ceased. Notice the language used here in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Verse 8, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? So here we see the true nature of doubt. When we let our circumstances cloud our perspective, so long we begin to doubt whether God will ever show his faithfulness again. We start to recreate God in our own image. Well, We grow weary. Our favor is oftentimes conditional. Our love is fickle. We tend to forget to be gracious. Well, maybe God's love has run out too. Maybe there is a limit to his grace or his compassion. Maybe all that's left for me is anger, judgment, discouragement, despair. This is the sad state of those who doubt God's faithfulness. They are left with only questions, confusion, fear of judgment. So let's stop here. Let's ask a question. How are you doubting God's faithfulness today? Is there something you have expected God to do in your life and you don't see him doing it? Are you in a particular life situation that you never thought you would be in? When you look back over the years of your life, do you see a path of bad decisions? Do you get, like I do at times, that deep pain in the pit of your stomach because you want so badly to go back and make things right or just have a do-over? Is God really faithful? Does he really care for me? Can I really be sure that his ways are best and that he knows what he's doing? This is a continual struggle for many Christians. Even though we may have to fight persistently against doubt throughout our entire lives, we can be sure that we will find ammunition for the fight in God's word. While there's no silver bullet for our doubt, Psalm 77 gives us an antidote. In fact, it gives us at least four antidotes we're going to look at. We're going to look at the antidote for doubt. The first antidote for our doubt comes in verse 10. 
Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So the first antidote for our doubt is to deliberately choose to think differently. Deliberately choose to think differently. The psalmist chooses as an act of his will to turn his attention to the faithfulness of God. Nothing has necessarily changed in his circumstances, right? Same circumstances, but his outlook is deliberately refocusing on what God has accomplished by his right hand. Now, this term right hand is a specific term used throughout the Old Testament to signify God's power in delivering his people out of distress, usually through the judgment of their enemies. So just a couple examples. We have to get this right hand idea right, okay? So Exodus 15, 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. God's right hand is his hand of salvation. Exodus 15, 12 says, You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. Psalm 17, 7 says, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. God rescues people from their adversaries with his right hand. Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So right here, we see that how we view the past is a deliberate choice. We can choose to view the past according to our own wisdom. We can look back on it with nostalgia, longing to return there. We can look back on it with regret, longing to have done something differently. Or like verse 10 says, we can choose to appeal to the right hand of the Most High. When the doubt begins to creep in, if we're going to fight against it, we must intentionally decide to view things differently. Instead of wallowing in our regret, we will look for God's hand of faithfulness. But, this is key, this is not a blind, deceptive faith that just depends on us convincing ourselves of something that's not true. So what you're telling me, Caleb, is just pretend all that bad stuff didn't happen, right? Pretend I didn't make all those bad choices. Just just look for the good things and pretend that God has it all figured out. That's not what I'm saying. This is not blind trust, right? As we read along, we see that the proof of God's faithfulness always outweighs the reasons for our doubts. Look at verses 11 and 12. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So the second antidote for our doubt is to meditate on the works of God. Specifically, the text says, his wonders and his mighty deeds. 
when we're faced with doubt, when doubt begins to creep in, we deliberately change our focus and say, no, I'm going to focus on the things of God, specifically the wonders and mighty deeds of God. Now, how do we do this? What does this mean? Well, we can do this lots of ways. First, and most importantly, we meditate on the mighty deeds of God by reading, studying, and meditating on his word. If we want to know what God's wonders and mighty deeds are, we have to start with his revealed word. This is what the Israelites would do when they put this psalm into practice. They would think back on their own written history and remind themselves of how God has shown himself to be faithful to his people. I mean, consider the plagues that God sent upon the Egyptians. God turned the Nile River into blood. He covered the land with frogs. He sent an infestation of flies and gnats. He struck the Egyptians with boils. And finally, in one night, he struck down the firstborn son of every Egyptian household. What kind of power must this God have to accomplish such things? What kind of care must he have for his people to bring such devastation upon their enemies? They receive mercy and their enemies receive judgment. This is what God does for his people. Consider the parting of the Red Sea. The Israelites had a sea in front of them, the Egyptians coming up behind them, and then somehow God parts the waters, creating huge walls of water on each side so that his people can walk through the sea on dry ground. This defies all logic, all reason, and all scientific plausibility. But the Israelites and we believe It actually happened. This actually happened in history. Again, God's people rescued through the judgment of their enemies. There are so many examples of God's wondrous deeds in the Old Testament, but we don't want to forget about the New Testament. Consider just a couple. Consider the incarnation of Christ. How is it? How is it possible that God would come down to earth to be born of a virgin? How is Christ both God and man? How is it that he can face every temptation that we face to its full extent and never sin? How is it that he can grow from a baby into a man learning just like we learn and all the while still maintain his divine nature? This is a mighty act of God. How do you explain that? You meditate on it. You let it sink in. But of course, we must regularly meditate on the most significant act of God in the history of the world. When Jesus, who was both fully God and fully man, was nailed to a cross and bore the sins of his people, The punishment that was meant for us, he took on himself. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And just like the Passover, and just like the parting of the Red Sea, God chooses to show mercy to his people. How? Through judgment. He judged our sins in Christ. 
We must never forget that the history recorded throughout Scripture is our history. If we're going to meditate on the mighty acts of God, right here, this is what we need. Meditate. If we have repented of our sin and trusted Christ for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life, then we have been adopted into God's family. This story of redemption contained in this book is now your story. It's my story. So first, when we, when we talk about meditating on the works of God, we, we, we do that through Scripture. But secondly, and way less important, uh, we, we see God's faithfulness um, not only throughout Scripture, but we see it throughout the history of the church. Take some time. Read about how God has been faithful to his people since the time of the apostles. Read about the rise and fall of nations throughout church history, how Christians have been persecuted, and how the gospel continues to triumph over sin over and over. Yes, we don't hold the record of church history to the same level as scripture, but it is still a way that we can remember God's mighty works. All of human history is God's history. The third way we can meditate on the works of God is in our own lives. What about your own life? No matter what your past consists of, no matter what you have done, it is always possible to look back and see how God has shown himself faithful to you. You may have to think hard. You have to think long. But I assure you, when you think back over your life, you can, you'll be able to, to pinpoint specific times in your life and say, God was there. And God changed that. God turned things in a way I was not expecting. Be thankful for that. So, the second antidote to our doubt is meditating on the works of God. We do that through, first of all, Meditating on his works in scripture, meditating on his works throughout church history, and meditating on his works in our own life. The third antidote we see comes in verses 13 through 15. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So here we see Asaph shifting just slightly off of God's works and onto his character. In fighting against doubt, pondering the character of God is also necessary. Now this should be the natural progression for anyone who desires to know God for who he is. When we ponder his works... And marvelous deeds, our hearts should quickly move to ask the question, who is this God and what is he like? He parted the Red Sea? What kind of God would do that? Who is this God? What is he like? Asaph answers this question for us. He tells us that God's ways are holy. This means the things God does are free from any immorality or impurity. They are good and perfect. Now think about the implications of just that statement. 
God's ways are holy. If that's true, then nothing in your life happens by accident, right? Even though your ways may not be holy, God's ways are, and nothing happens outside of his holy, perfect plan. His sovereign control extends over all your actions and decisions, including all the decisions you have made in the past. Don't you find that comforting? Doesn't that cause thankfulness and love to stir in your heart? We don't have to look back on our lives with regret and remorse and questions. God's ways are holy. His ways are good. Continuing, Asaph says, what God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. This reminds us that our, true, that our God is the one true God. He is the maker of all things. Therefore, there's no other being in the universe that compares to him. He is the one who has shown his power and might among all people. Surrounding nations in the Old Testament were able to see God's mighty hand at work delivering Israel from hardship. But let's not skip past this phrase too quickly. You have made known your might among the peoples. God has made himself known in the things he has done and said. This is something we oftentimes forget when we're dealing with doubt or discouragement. See, God, God does not hide from us. He has not secluded himself in a corner away from the eyes of men. Romans 1 tells us that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So the next time you are faced with doubt and discouragement, ponder the character of God. He has made himself known to you in his works and in his word. He is not hiding. Remember that his ways are holy. Remember that he is the one true God. Remember that his ways, even though we may not fully understand them, are the ways he has chosen to bring about your good. And let me just, as a slight aside, say that spending time reading and studying these things is not a waste of time. I'm convinced, and I'm convinced because I see this in my own life, but I'm convinced that many of our struggles with doubt and discouragement would diminish if we would spend time pondering the ways and wonders of God. The cure for our doubt and discouragement doesn't lie in here. It's not in our hearts. The cure is outside of us. The antidote is outside of us. It's meditating on God's character and his works. This is where things like systematic theology and biblical theology are so valuable. We hear those words and we just think intellectual, right? It's just an intellectual exercise. It's optional. You could take it or leave it. But these are not simply intellectual disciplines. When we study theology appropriately, we are pondering the works and character of God. 
And we have such wonderful resources available to us, literally at our fingertips. Shame on us if we doubt God's goodness while at the same time remaining ignorant of his character and his works. He has not hidden himself, church. He is revealing himself. So, just one more shameless plug. A great way to bolster your faith in these areas would be to attend our foundations classes. We have hermeneutics classes coming up in a couple weeks. You can learn about how to read and understand and meditate on the Bible. We have overview classes on all the books of the Bible. We have systematic theology classes. This is why we do these classes. We don't do them just because a lot of nerdy people like to get together and think nerdy thoughts about the Bible. We do it because we want to know God. We want to meditate on his works and on his word. We need help. What was that, our third? Meditate on the character of God. The last antidote we see in this passage comes in verses 16 through 20. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And what do you think those verses are referring to? It's the parting of the Red Sea. I don't think this is metaphorical language here. I think this is an accurate description of what it was like to stand at the water's edge of the Red Sea and to behold the power of God as he drew a line in the waters and pushed the sea into massive walls of water to the sides so the Israelites could walk through on dry ground. I think that's what that description is, is from. Clouds pouring out water, skies thundering, arrows flashing, the earth trembling and shaking. That's the power of God. But look what he says next. Your way, God's way, was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Church, God's ways, they're not our ways. When we think we are surrounded by enemies and darkness and doubt, we start to question God's faithfulness. We start to moan, complain, and worry. But that's because we forget that God's ways oftentimes will not redirect us around the sea. That would make sense. Instead, he takes us through it, right through it. Yes, God will deliver you. He always delivers his people. But he will do it in a way that magnifies his wisdom, his power, his holiness, 
and his steadfast love. God's wisdom put on display is meant to shut our mouths, to cause us to stand in wonder at his unsearchable ways. Who would have thought? You're going to take us through the sea? We could turn around and fight and you could deliver us that way or we could go around the sea and somehow outrun the Egyptians. That's what, that's what they were thinking. It's not God's way. God's way is different. It's never what we expect. And it magnifies his wisdom, his power, his goodness. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's wisdom is unsearchable. There's no other wisdom that compares. God does what no one else has the guts to do. He takes us through the sea. He takes us into the storm. And when he does, he leads us through it as our good shepherd. He cares for us. He strengthens our weak hands and our feeble knees. He prepares our hands for battle. He encourages our timid and anxious hearts by his spirit, and he brings us out safely on the other side. This is not the way we would do it. But that's what makes him God. Think about it. How has God shown his power and presence in your own life? How has he done what you never thought he would do to bring you to the place you are now? Take some time today and ponder God's wisdom being put on display in your own life. Let me just add one more thing from the very end of this passage. Verse 20, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. There's a lot could be said about this, but let me just say that God leads his people, but oftentimes he appoints leaders. He appoints specific people in your life to walk with you through what you're going through. So don't neglect the community of faith. Don't neglect those whom God has put in leadership over you, but not just those people, just the friends that you have, the family that you have, brothers and sisters in Christ who are there to walk through the sea, through the storm with you. God leads us many times by the hand of specific people in our lives. So what we've seen today is that it is common for us to experience doubt. When we're faced with present difficulties, we oftentimes doubt God's future faithfulness. 
But God's word has not left us to ourselves in these times of distress. Psalm 77 has been such an encouragement to me this week. But I know that for me, the daily fight against doubt will continue. These antidotes that we've seen from this passage, they're not just equations, right? It's not like we just check off a list of things to do and all of our doubt and discouragement just disappears. Like, okay, Caleb, I'm going to think differently. I'm going to meditate on God's works. I meditated on God's character. I'm meditating on His wisdom. Bam, my doubt is gone. It's not an equation. But we can be confident that God will sustain our faith in the midst of whatever struggle you're facing. He hears your cries. He is working in your life with his right hand. His ways are wondrous and mighty. His character is holy and good. And we can trust his wisdom. Even when we don't feel it, we can know that these things are true. My hope today is that we would be a church full of people who intentionally set our eyes on God, who meditate on His ways and His character, because fighting against doubt leads to full confidence in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Word gives us such hope. God, I thank you that your word doesn't just give us general principles for life. But God, when we meditate on your word and when we really read it and study it, we unpack it, we see that you have given us such clear instruction on how to glorify you with our lives, how to, how to find joy and encouragement. We thank you for that, God. And I pray for our church that we would find joy as we meditate on your works, on your mighty acts, as we meditate on your holy and good character, and as we see and love and um, are so thankful for your wisdom put on display in our lives. God, make us a church full of these things. Remove our doubt, remove our discouragement. I pray that we would find true contentment in knowing you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.